Welcome back to Christian Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Rogers, and this is the podcast where we discuss all things outdoors and how we can enjoy God every day. This portion of the podcast is being brought to you by the Clarendon Club. The Clarendon Club is the Southeast premier hunting destination for waterfowl and whitetail deer in the Carolinas. Located just off the world-famous Santee Cooper Lakes, the Clarendon Club offers duck and deer hunting memberships for the distinguishing sportsmen. The Clarendon Club also offers venues and lodging for retreats, entertaining clients, and weddings. Contact the Clarendon Club for your next hunting adventure or entertaining needs at 803-478-4491. Hi, the Christian Outdoors Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Rogers. And today's episode is actually part one of a two-part interview that I conducted with one of the greatest fisher persons on the planet today. Um... If we track that by International Game Fish Association world records, then she is right at the top of her game by holding 190, more than 190 IGFA world records in all tackle, in conventional fishing, and in fly fishing. Uh, she's a phenomenal lady and an outstanding angler, obviously, but also a, just a phenomenal person. She's been an entrepreneur of a very successful business that she started, and she's going to share with us about that. She's going to share with us her, her intro into fishing with her dad and, and a great story about that, and also her faith journey. Uh, th- this lady is not, not only a successful entrepreneur or a successful fisherman, but she loves Jesus Christ passionately. She has been all over the world sharing the gospel uh, on mission trips and in, and in other avenues that she will tell us about. She's active in her church, and she also conducts fishing trips all over the world where she's able to take people and expose them to the great life of fishing and, uh, and in different places around the world. Um, she's she's wonderful conversationalist as well, and I am so excited to have her on my podcast. Miss Meredith McCord will be joining us today. In this episode of part one and uh, in a second part that will air next week. And when I was trying to decide where to actually cut this interview that went for almost two hours into two different parts, it was really hard because the conversation was so fluid and so natural that it just kept going on. So uh, forgive forgive me that it feels like it just kind of cuts off at the end. It really doesn't. Uh, It will pick up again the next week. I just feel like a two-hour podcast is a bit much. And so we'll be getting to her interview here in just a minute. But before we do, I want to say again that uh, that I really appreciate everyone who tunes in to Christian Outdoors Podcast. This is a labor of love and of passion for me. It's, uh, it is my ministry that I feel like God has led me to this place, and I really appreciate everyone who tunes in. And we appreciate your prayer support very much. Please keep us in your prayers. As we strive to continue to produce good content with a focus on Jesus Christ and the outdoor lifestyle, your prayers are very important. Um, prayer is, is uh, such a powerful thing that we as Christians can can use. And here at Christian Outdoors Podcast, we believe in prayer. We believe in the power of prayer. And your prayers are very much needed in order for the success of this podcast to continue. But also, if you want to uh, participate further if you know someone who would make a great guest on this podcast, please send me an email. It's Pete, P-E-T-E, at ChristianOutdoors.org. And I would love to talk with you about that, about someone who you think would make a great guest on the show. 
And if you feel led to support the podcast with your finances, we would appreciate that as well. You can reach me again at Pete at KrishnaOutdoors.org, and we can talk about how to set that up. If you want to become a partner with us, uh, if your company would like to become a partner, we would really appreciate any support that, that you can give us to keep this podcast going where we share the good news of Jesus Christ and help people to enjoy God every day. So without any further delay, though, I want to get right to the, the interview I was able to conduct with Miss Meredith McCord. This is part one of a two-part uh, interview that I was able to have with her. And thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy it. So, Meredith, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, please? All right. My name is Meredith McCord, and I'm from Houston, Texas. I'm an entrepreneur and a very passionate angler and um, a believer in Jesus Christ. That's awesome. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. I mean, we've had a little bit of difficulty getting this thing going today, and but we've gotten through some of the technical difficulties, we hope. And uh, <laughs> I am really excited to have you on the show, Meredith. I really am. You know, after first hearing your story uh, on another podcast a few months ago with April Vokey, I thought it was just, just an awesome story. And I really wanted to dive into parts of it a little bit more than what you were able to there. And so I'm looking forward to, to hearing all about it. But for... But for people who may not have heard your story, uh, I want to give a little bit of background is that Miss Meredith is a, when she says passionate anger, I think that is a major understatement. Um, If you will just do a little bit of search in the IGFA, you will find her name littered throughout that entire book. And we're going to get into that in just a little bit. But I'm, I'm really fascinated about how you got into fishing. If you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit about, about how you got into it and, uh, how that all started. Absolutely. Um, you know, I'm one of three children born to my parents, Rick and Jane McCord, and, both of uh, my parents, as well as both sets maternal and paternal grandparents, were passionate anglers as well. And so I kind of grew up in a fishing family, not in a commercial sense, just as recreational, part time lovers of being in the outdoors and fishing. So from a very, very young age, before I could even walk, I, I had a fishing pole in my hands, sitting in my parents' lap holding tight, waiting for that bobber to move. Oh, yeah. Well, probably a Snoopy rod with a cork on the end of it, right? <laughs> you know, back then, <laughs> it, you know, funny enough, cane poles. Oh, good. Poles back then. So, uh, but, you know, I think I did eventually gra- uh, graduate up to a Snoopy or uh, Barbie or something like that, Zepco. But, uh, I, you know, I just started off with, you know, either a closet dowel, like a wooden dowel with right, some string right. on the end of it, or uh, if we were catfishing and bass fishing at our pond and tank in Texas, it was an old, you know, cane pole. And and that's a wonderful way to start. It's simple. It's easy. You can't really mess it up. You just lay it out there and wait for the bobber to bounce around, and then you can catch some nice bluegill or, or do y'all have shell cracker in uh in Texas? You know, I've never even heard of a shell cracker. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. 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 No. Uh, uh, well, that's what, that's the local vernacular. I think it's a red-eared sunfish is the, is the proper name for it. It has a, ye- oh, it's, yes. it's like well, a brim, yeah. but has a yellow belly. Instead yes. Of the, well, we do have that. I just never have heard that name for it. We call it a red-ear. Yeah. So. Yeah. They call them shell crackers here. And uh, for, for some reason, I don't know why, other than in some of the local lakes where we have freshwater mussels, that's what they love to eat. 
so, so they crack they crack yeah. the shells of the mussels to eat, and uh, so we call them shell crackers. Uh, and, it's awesome. Yeah, and the, the world record actually was caught at Santee Cooper Lakes here in South Carolina, a uh, little over five pounds. What? <clears throat> That's a giant shell that cracker. That had to have been huge. That's not even a dinner plate. That's more of a platter. It's like a hubcap. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. it is. It is. And actually, uh, I'd say every year or two, I'm going to plant a seed here in you for chasing world records. They'll catch four pounders uh, fairly regularly Incredible. in the Sandy Cooper Lakes. And so we'll we'll talk about that later, about how to hook you up with the right people to go there. That'd be an awesome experience to try to catch one of those. That would uh, be fun. That would and, be a lot of fun. They are gigantic, and they really, really fight well. So, so you started with a cane pole. Uh, um, Start with a cane pole, sat there with my parents. You know, my dad was just a, a, a huge fisherman, just loved it, loved it. Any spare moment he had, he loved being on the water. And But what he loved more than that was being with his family. So it was just a natural for him to want to expose his children um, to the great outdoors and to fishing. So all three of us, my brother, younger brother and sister and I grew up with rods in our hands. But something in me, Pete, um, resonated. I, you know, I can't explain it. I can't under, I, I can't tell people how did I become addicted to this sport. It just, for me, it was striking a chord on the piano and it just resonated within me. And, um, from a very, very, very young age, um, any spare moment I had, uh, I just wanted as, you know, a young kid, I would go running for the water with a rod in my hand. And, and did you start with like spin cast or spinning reels or did you begin on the fly fishing? Oh, no, no. I, you know, I wasn't even aware of fly fishing until the mid nineties. So I, I, I began, you know, with just a, a open face spinning rod. Okay. We, okay. Um, you know, like I said, I'm from Houston, Texas, but my my parents in the late 70s bought a piece of property right outside of Houston. Dad wanted to have us educated in the city. The schools were good here. And his business, he was a real estate developer. Um, you know, he needed to be in the city for his work. But right, right. as far as the weekends, he he wanted to get us clear of the concrete jungle. And so we, we were raised every weekend um, in Navasota, Texas, on a piece of property that had a couple of, we call them down here in Texas, tanks, um, yeah, which, yeah. you know, means ponds or lakes. And, you know, and so I, once I was old enough and graduated off those cane poles and zip codes, I went to an open face spinning rod and started spin fishing for bass. Okay. Kind of my, my thing. Now, now just for the listener to be clear, a tank is not a, an above ground water tank. It's a, it's actually an in ground pond is what you're referring to. Correct. That's like exactly for right. right. That's exactly right. right. And right. it can be big, you know, yeah, we yeah. call a tank. I mean, could be a 10 acre, um, lake. Right, so right, right. It's just a funny term that we use here, um, down here in Texas. Yeah, and and I and I think it's because uh, you, and you see it in like uh, Colorado and and Kansas as well when they call them tanks, but they're referring to the above ground watering troughs or tanks for the cattle that free range. And down there, you have them above ground and below ground, so you just call them all tanks. 
Yeah, we do. <laughs> we yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. All right. So we're talking ponds here in the southeast. I'm from South Carolina, and so we, we just call them farm ponds. And it's still some of my favorite fishing is a farm pond. Oh, I, absolutely. I love fishing in farm ponds. I do, too. I uh, do, too. Uh, I mean, you can do you can do a lot of experimenting on a smaller body of water that you have to expound on a big reservoir. But but uh, uh, I, I tell you, you, you give me a spinning ride with a devil's horse with some overhanging limbs in a farm pond or a frog, and I'm a happy man. Well, you know, <laughs> you know, during this time of quarantine, I'll tell you, we've been sheltering in place um, out in Navasota. And so I have not kind of been still, I should say, for many months just because my travels take me and I'm always on the go. But for the past two months, I have been sheltering in place. And so what have I been doing with that time? Well, I've been fishing hard these ponds that I just haven't really spent that much time on over the you know last 30 years. And so it's just been a blast to kind of get to know every nook and cranny of those lakes. And, you know, I, I don't know if you saw it, but two weeks ago, I landed my personal best bass out of one of those lakes that my dad had built years ago, a 10 10 acre lake and um, people are laughing because they're like, oh, well, it's just a stock pond. That's not hard to catch it. A 10 pound, four ounce bass out of, but to be able to grow one that large and then to find it. I mean, the biggest one we had ever caught out of there up until this year was about five pounds. So we didn't even know it was there. And um, it happened one evening on a uh, popper, which is, that's a reference to a fly that's like a top water action um, lure, but it's deer hair popper in this thing. It was a frog pattern and it came out and just enveloped it. So yeah, you never know what's in these farm ponds. And that gave me the biggest, um, kick I've had in a long time. And I know my dad was looking down from heaven, very excited about that one. Oh, I'm sure he was. I am sure he was. You broke the 10 pound record. You know, I've was telling some friends of mine recently is I've caught 40, Two, I think it is fish over eight pounds, largemouth bass. I'm talking about, and fourteen of those are over nine. I still haven't caught a ten pounder yet. Oh my god, <laughs> that, I, that I, I, is I'm hilarious. so close. Oh my gosh, you've caught that many over eight pounds. You were yes, so ma'am. close. Steve. I've been so close so many times, and I mean, I think nine twelve is my biggest, and uh, and I just cannot seem to break that ten pound barrier. I, it's Whoa. just. But when I do, I, uh, I hope to shatter it. Yeah, you know? <laughs> there you go, with like a 12-pounder. You know? Like, let's not That's touch right. 10, let's go big. That's right. I don't want 10-1, I want 12, you know. So, That's right. That's right. Uh, I've had the same kind of experience with trout. Um, you know, I, I trout fish a lot uh, from Alaska to Argentina, Colorado, and, uh, you know, even Russia and all in between. And I'll tell you, Everyone around me, all my clients have all caught 30 inchers, and I have yet to ever catch a 30 inch trout. So, <laughs> a rainbow trout, I should be specific. I have caught 30 inch yeah. trout, brown trout, but not a rainbow. And that's the one that's kind of like you. Like, how many 29, 29 and a half have I caught? A lot, but just not the 30 inch. Yeah. I can't, can't seem to break the barrier. Uh, but, but when you do, it'll be 33 inches. Yeah, that's right. 34. I'm just going to even go bigger. <laughs> oh, 34. Okay. So how much does a 34-inch uh, rainbow weigh? 
You know, it just depends on kind of the strain um, and where you find it. You know, I think a 34-inch rainbow down in something like Jurassic Lake in Argentina could wind you up, you know, up to 25 pounds. But I think that if you find more of one of those, um, maybe in Kamchatka, Russia, that's coming up from you know, making the runs down the rivers and stuff like that, that they come up more lean, I think you're going to end up with more of like a, probably a 20 pounder. So it can make a huge difference. And a 34 could even be bigger than that. It just depends. It really just depends. But we're over 20 pounds. Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. And that's what, yeah. yeah. And that's what I was trying to get to. I I mean, I've never seen a trout that big, so I had no idea how big they got as far as that goes. Yeah. I think 10 pounders about the biggest that you can catch anywhere around where I live. And those are in private waters up in, up in Northern Georgia and, and Southern Southwestern North Carolina. Um, Because in South Carolina, we don't have private water as far as streams. But in Georgia, you can have private water. If you own land on both sides of the stream, then that stream is yours. I've heard that. And I've heard that they can grow some really big trout there. They do. They do. But here in South Carolina, if the water is navigable, it's open water to anybody. Accessing it is not. But, but, you know, once you get in the water, if, if you can float in it, it's considered navigable. You know, even if it's floating an inner tube, and so it's yeah. public, and so it's public water. So it makes. I a sure lot. like that though. That just yeah. gives everyone access. You know, no matter Completely who you agree. are. Completely. Yeah, I like it. That's right. I like it. That's right. So you mentioned in your in your brief intro that uh, you were also an entrepreneur, um, and that's a that's something that's always been a passion of mine as well. So once you, uh, if you don't mind, just sharing with the listeners your journey down that down that path as well. Sure, sure. You know, I think God gives us these characteristics early on, just like I fell in love with fishing from, you know, about the time I could walk. Same with being a salesperson. I was just always entrepreneurial. Um, Again, came from an entrepreneurial family, had role models such as my grandparents. Both grandfathers, um, dad, uncles were all entrepreneurs and all had their own businesses. But, you know, I remember at the age of around eight, cutting mistletoe, getting my dad to help me cut mistletoe out of trees up at our farm. And I'd come home and put red ribbons around them and sell them right before Christmas, bundles of mistletoe for the holidays and, you know, or selling lemonade and cookies on on the sidewalk in front of our house. You know, I, I always just was a salesman and loved the idea of making money. And, you know, I don't know. I just, it was the thrill of the sale. And so, um, went to Vanderbilt university, got my degree there in business and leadership with a minor in art. And then went in commercial real estate. It's kind of what I knew. I had done that during the summers, during high school and during college, um, trying to follow, you know, a little bit follow my dad's footsteps, but well, sure, sure. kind of started itching within a year after, um, being in corporate America, just knew that that was not my place. And so I started applying to business school saying, okay, well maybe that will lead me to what I really want to do. And in the midst of actually applying to business school, I was in Atlanta, like I said, uh, uh, practicing real estate, commercial real estate, building apartments there, when I got invited to a paint-your-own pottery studio by two of my coworkers that were getting married. And they were having a shower there for um, all their friends and coworkers where the men came in and painted bowls and the girls came in and painted plates. And the bride and groom had picked out five 
five colors. So no matter how you painted your bowl or your plate, uh, they all matched at the end of the day. And I just thought this was the best shower I had ever been to. And it was just creative and fun. And what was most interesting is looking around that studio that, that evening, um, as we were drinking wine and eating pizza is that the men were getting into it just as much as the women were. And they were having as much fun as the ladies were. So I was like, God, there's something to this. And the more I visited, I went back and visited the store and painted gifts for friends and family members. It became my go-to for all my friends seemed to be getting married around that same time. So I was creating wedding gifts for them. Um, that, you know, man had been painting pottery from the beginning of mankind. I mean, you know, you right, go back right. to the cavemen and what were they doing? They were painting ceramics. How do we recognize the Mayan culture? And that's right. through pottery, you know? So that's I was right. like, oh, there's, right. some, there's something to this. And the owner of that shop came up to me and it's a long story, but he's like, you really love this business. Have you ever thought about starting something like this? I'd love to talk to you about maybe doing a franchise. But that's what put it into my head. And while I didn't want to do a franchise of anybody else, I was like, what if I did this on my own? So I went back and I told my mom and dad, hey, mom, dad, what if I started a paint your own pottery studio? And I wasn't going to do it in Atlanta. It was already saturated. I didn't want to be competition for for this store that had also been so kind to me. But I started looking around. Let me ask you a quick question. So. Is paint your own pottery. So you're not making the pottery and painting it. You're buying pottery that's already uh, done, so to speak, has already been shaped and formed. And so all you're doing is painting it and then firing the paint into it. That's exactly right, Pete. It comes oh, wow. to you already okay. as a dog bowl, as a coffee mug, and then you have like 60 colors to choose from. And so you design it how you would like it. Okay. Wow. What a great concept. It was awesome. <laughs> it was awesome. So I came home, told mom and dad, I think I want to open a pottery shop. And my dad just had smoke coming out of his ears because he had just paid pretty penny for me to go get an education. Um, (laughs) And he felt like me going into retail was just throwing away all the potential I had in commercial real estate or wherever I might end up in corporate America. But what I just, it, it wasn't a fit for me. Corporate America just was not. And so as he saw me get more serious about doing this, Um, and how he saw me get more serious is I started writing a business plan. And then I went to the SBA and started talking to them about how would I finance something like this? And, um, when he saw that, he said, you know what, if this is your dream, I'm going to support you. And while he did not support me financially, he and my mom were my biggest moral supporters. And he introduced me to other people that became investors in my company. Mm -hmm. And so in 1998, I started a business called the Mad Potter. And I started with one studio and within, let's see, eight years, I had f- four studios and one franchise. Oh, wow. And it just, it was. That is fast. It was fast and it went amazingly well. It just, I, I did well and had a ball in doing it. And, you know, I had studied art at Vanderbilt. I had studied leadership and management. And look, I actually got to use both of my degrees in what I was doing. Right, and that was just right. rare. You know, it is. It really is. I mean, very few people. I have two kids in college now. And so and that's one of the things that we talk about is, are you going to be able to get a job in what you're studying? And 
one of the comebacks and one of them said was how many people actually work in their field of major? I'm like, well, that's not Nobody. my point. Yeah. That's not my point. I'm paying for this field of major. I want exactly. You to, exactly. You know, and nothing against liberal arts degrees necessarily, but I want something that's a little more marketable than humanities. Yeah. You know, and so, yeah. And so they're both, they're both business majors and minors in Christian studies. And, uh, and they're both, well, one's going business finance, the other one's going business, uh, shoot, what is it? Management. Okay. Yeah. Those yeah. are good. Yeah. Yeah. And they're, I mean, they're sophomore and freshmen. So you know how that'll change before they oh, get Oh, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. I thought I was going to be a teacher. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And yeah. change my major halfway through. So, sure. 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 That's a, you know, but, but what I hear in that, uh, Meredith, is that you you saw an opportunity. You didn't just jump didn't just jump into it and say, "Hey, I think I'll do this too." But you but you did your your research, your homework. You went back and 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 looked for a market that wasn't saturated, as you said, and you were able to to start with with nothing basically and create something, which I think is a very positive word for any listener out there who's contemplating entrepreneurship because I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for that. I've, I've, uh, bought and sold a few companies myself and started some and, and there's nothing like it. And I've told people many times, I know we're digressing a little bit here, but I think this is important is the only thing you regret about entrepreneurship is not having done it sooner. Amen. Amen. And it, that's just such the truth. And I'll also say one other thing to that, Pete, though. I, you know, I've counseled many people that have thought about starting their own business. It's also not for everyone. I think that God gives those people, um, entrepreneurs, they are, you have to be a risk taker. If you Absolutely. are adverse to risk and often find yourself in fear or um, paralyzed by fear of making decisions, and you're maybe not good at delegating, then I, I encourage those maybe not to go into um, running Completely their own agree. business. Completely so agree. So I, I, while I love um, counseling entrepreneurs and others that are interested, I also um, try to be really careful in learning their characters, um, strengths, and their personalities first before encouraging that. And so that's one thing I would encourage um, your listeners is like, you know, what is your, what is your personality? Are you a go-getter? Do you, are you good at delegating? Because one of the things I found out really quickly, owning one shop was a lot of a challenge because of course I was, I was kind of um, figuring out everything as I went and I had never really been in retail before didn't even know how much cash to have in the cash drawer when I first right. opened. I, I know didn't that. Have, yeah. yeah. Didn't even have a policy or procedure manual. But what happens is I was so, the business was going so well, I knew I needed to open another store to handle the demand of the business, but I couldn't duplicate myself. And right, if right. you're not good at letting go and letting and delegating out your work to someone else, you'll never be able to expand. You're yeah, only sure. going to be able to go as far as because you like to be in control. And unless you can give up that control to someone else to go run that second store or run your first so you can go open the second, you're not going to be able to expand well. Absolutely. And, and yeah, it's like a uh, someone told me a couple of decades ago is if you're not 
preparing somebody to take your place, you'll never be able to move. That's exactly and correct. exactly the same thing that you're saying is is you have to be willing to to train somebody that you trust that you've hired to be able to take your place so you can go start that other store or go start that other business or and that way this one's here just rocking along. You're still monitoring it, but you're trusting them to run it the way that you've been running it while you're doing the other one, either either another store or another business. Exactly. And you know what, Pete, I think that will take us in in the direction I think you want to go with this, but even being able to release that control, delegate to someone else to allow them to take control while you're gone, that's what allowed me to go out and do all this mission work right when I had first started my company. I mean, I started in 1998, and when people are like, when did you go on your first mission trip? And I went, I got the call. I was sitting in church one morning with my parents, mom on my left side, dad on my right side. I'll never forget this. And we had prayers for the people. I grew up in an Episcopalian church and went to a contemporary service. And when we were praying for the people, we were praying for a team of missionaries that were about to head off to Russia to go work with orphans. And in that moment and in that prayer, I felt God audibly say to me, Meredith, you're to go. You know, go go feed my people. And this was June of 1998, mind you. I had just opened the doors to the Mad Potter April 17th. (laughs) (laughs) And it was two months after. And I turned to my dad and mom and I said, I'm supposed to be on this trip. And my dad um, never said bad words, but he, he almost said something to what the hell are you talking about? <laughs> You've <laughs> you just, just started your own <laughs> business. You're not going to go to Russia where, you know, those enemies are. You know, he grew up in a time where that right. Russia Cold was War. in Cold War. And, and he had spied on Russia. I mean, you know, so uh, serving in our army, I mean, he, he was like, no, that's our enemy. There is no way you're going there. And long story short, uh, I ended up going in August of that year, but it was because I was willing to, you know, lay down my control and give someone else it and saying, Hey, I've got to go do this work in Russia. Please take care of my business. Now, maybe it wasn't the smartest thing in the world to do, but it actually was life-changing for me. And I, I did feel definitely that God was calling me to that, to that at that time. But, but, you know, it's a great segue into this, too, Meredith, is that when we talk about relinquishing the control to somebody else in our business, we also have to relinquish control to God in our life. And and when we're praying to Jesus and praying to God for this or for that, we have to relinquish our control, say, God, I want this to happen and I'm going to make it happen. And that's not us really trusting our prayer and trusting that God's going to do it. We have to fully give ourselves to him in order for him to take us where he needs us to be. Absolutely. It's so true. And I will tell you, as a firstborn child, and I I don't know if you are, but it is very difficult to let go. (laughs) I'm the youngest. (laughs) Okay. So as an oldest, I'm just a go-getter. And I'm like, well, I don't need to distract God with all this. I'm just going to make it happen. And I'm just... (laughs) So I, it's a daily struggle that I, I have to, I mean, really have a strong conversation with myself. Meredith, let go of the steering wheel. It's time to let God take over. 
That's right. That's right. And 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 sometimes, I mean, it's probably just like when you got ready to to exit your business. Um, someone told me when I when I bought my medical equipment business years ago, they said the first thing in your business plan needs to be your exit strategy. And I was like, That's why? True. Why why do I? Ha-? And he said, now whether you're going to sell it, whether you're going to give it to your kids, whether you're just going to shut it down and retire, you need to know right now what your exit strategy is, because that's going to be the driving force behind everything you're doing is how are you going to get there? You know, build it up to leave your children or build it up to a marketable point where you can sell it or what. And, and I think that that's, that goes back to that. Okay, God, where do you want me now in my life? And we're we're projecting that out with our businesses and, and, and okay, I have to be ready. So if God calls me into a different direction, like like starting a podcast or something like that, then I had to be willing to let this go. I mean, like completely go. Mm-hmm. Like, like I said, sell it, shut it down, leave it to somebody else or whatever so that I can do exactly what God wants me to do. And that is a very hard thing to do for many people. It is. It is. I mean, for everyone. I mean, it is a constant battle between... I want in the flesh and <laughs> what God wants. And I think too, for living in this day and age, which is an age of right here, right now, it's so hard to look future. It's just so it hard. Is. I mean, it is. Um, and so, you know, I, I will say that I ran the Mad Potter thinking that I would own it for forever. And I, I didn't really have an extra exit strategy. Um, it just, what happened in my walk is that there was just a time where new passions such as this fishing travel was taking over and the mad potter started and my employees started suffering a little bit because I wasn't as focused on it as I should be. And so I started to see my sales drop a little bit. I wasn't um, as involved in my employees' lives as I had been in the past and encouraging them and leading them and being their mentor. And um, I just, I realized that it was time. It was time to um, move forward. And Honestly, what had happened for me is I had gotten a call from one of my vendors who had seen my purchases starting to decrease. I mean, I was still doing very well financially, but wasn't doing what I had done. I mean, everyone in 2014 and 15, I think, were killing it, Um, at least in the retail world. Houston was doing really well. Um, Oil was back on top. And so, you know, we were just performing well. And then in 15... Um, it just started going down 16. I just even got more distracted with fishing. And then by 17, this vendor calls me and she said, Hey, I've noticed your numbers just aren't where they were. I've got a couple of people out here that would be interested in purchasing your business. Do you want to sell? And I was like, well, no, I mean, it's still really producing a good income for me and allowing me to continue to fish and pursue this new passion. But the more that I thought about it, the more that I prayed about it, I realized I was doing both the business I started a disservice as well as my employees by not investing enough of my time and energy into it. And I said, you know what? I need to let this go and let someone invest into it what is proper and good. Right, right. Sure enough, found this couple out of Florida and they have just killed it. I mean, within the first year, they increased sales 18%. 
And I oh sold, my goodness! I know I sold a year and a half ago, and they are just smashing numbers and smashing all Good the sales them. projections. So Good for them. I'm just so thrilled to see them take it. And and I talked to actually I talked to one of my GMs yesterday, my general manager that ran it for me so well while I was out fishing and pursuing records. She um, she and I visited yesterday. I just wanted to check on her and see how they were doing since all of this coronavirus shut down. And, um, it was just really fun to hear the enthusiasm in her voice as she's telling me about all the fun new projects that they're working on with the new owners. So that's great. It's very, yes, it was very rewarding and I needed to let it go and it went at the perfect time. Right. Right. Well, that's a great transition too, though. I mean, it's a, it was a win-win for everybody. It was, it, it absolutely was. Yes, Yes, ma'am. So you've, you've, you've mentioned, uh, and I'm, you know, you can see here by the, that I'm jumping around a little bit, but I think the conversation dictates that is, is one of the things I want the listeners to know is that Meredith is a world traveling angler and she began doing some, uh, what do you call it? Travel hosting. Is that what it's called? Meredith? Yeah. Trip hosting. Yeah, that's right. Trip, yeah. Trip hosting where, where she, uh, takes people around the world to different fishing destinations. But what interested me is when I first heard her on the other podcast that I referenced is she mentioned fishing in a place I can't even pronounce, uh, say chili, say, how you say, <laughs> yeah. how you Seychelles. say it, Seychelles. Uh-huh. I had, I, you know, and I'm a history major and a geograph and a geography nut. And I still had to look it up. Yep. I was like, where is this? And it's <laughs> it's in the middle of the Indian Ocean. I mean, who even knows that it's there as a major fishing destination except people who are hardcore anglers? So I remember you telling a story about your dad taking you there. And I'd love for you to retell that if you don't mind. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I actually had heard about the Seychelles growing up. My grandmother and grandfather paternal were huge travelers and also just loved cultures and um, food and just getting to know people from different ways of life and so forth. And on her dream list was always the Seychelles Islands. And it's, um, it, you know, it stems from, uh, it's French. And so, um, but it was, it was on, it was on my radar just because she always talked about how beautiful it was and why she wanted to go there. So what happened was in 2005, I had been, you know, I had been running the Mad Potter for about eight years at this point and fishing still, you know, on every now and then. And during the summers with my parents up at a cabin that they have in Canada. And, um, I had begun to fly fish by this point. My dad and I were always kind of fishing buddies. I had the, the bug just like he did. My brother and sister enjoy fishing, but it was he and I that always kind of stay, wanted to stay out the latest and go for the longest and go every day, right, whether right, rain or right. shine. You know, we right. didn't really care. And we just loved to fish. And so in 2005, um, he got invited on an all-men's trip to the Seychelles that we're talking about. And it was for saltwater fly fishing, sight casting for unique species such as giant trevally, triggerfish, bonefish, um, and just a whole myriad of different species. And a couple of months before the trip was to commence, one of the men had to pull out for various reasons. I can't even remember why. And so they were looking for that 12th angler. They needed 12 people to fill the group 
so that some random person didn't get put in on their on their trip. Because these lodges, the beautiful thing about fly fishing lodges is that they're small, very intimate, most of them holding anywhere from four to 12 anglers. So if you can fill the whole lodge, then you have control over who, you, who you're who you fishing with yeah, and who you're yeah. spending time with day to day. And that's exactly what I do today is fill a lodge. I book the whole thing and then fill it with people that I know will all get along and have fun. So they were looking for that 12th person, couldn't find anybody. And my dad kind of put my name into the hat and the men were like, Ooh, <laughs> not a girl, <laughs> not a girl. a girl. This is a men's trip. But luckily my, my uncle was already in on the trip as well as a couple of family friends who had children around my age and knew me and knew that I love to fish. And so they were like, well, you know what? Why not? Let's, let's let her come. So that was the first really intensive week long far and away travel fishing trip I had ever done before. And it absolutely changed my life. I had never thrown a fly rod really over about an eight weight. And so I had to learn to use a nine, a 10, 11, and 12 um, for these bigger fish. Um, I had never seen such monster fish while waiting, you know, beautiful white sand flats. It just, it absolutely, I'm a gamer. I'm a hunter. Um, and that's exactly what this was. It wasn't just throwing your cane pole and waiting for the bobber to move. This was out. You're actually actively pursuing the fish. You're constantly looking. It's very similar to going out, um, you know, and hunting on the prowl, not sitting in a blind waiting for something to come, but actually stalking. Yeah. 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 Bought and yeah. stuck. It's going out and stalking your prey and then making the right presentation and getting them to believe that something artificial, such as a crab imitation or a shrimp imitation, is actually real and alive. And that you get the fish to eat it. And it blew my mind. And um, that group of men were so wonderful and generous. And for the next nine years, they adopted me into their band of men. And, you know, all my dad's age in their seventies and we all traveled (laughs) together and it was a ball. And I ended up kind of acting as a mother hen to a lot of them. Now, Ernie, have you put on your sunscreen and Joe, it looks like you burned your nose yesterday. Like we need to cover up. And, but it was, we just had, we just had a ball. And when you um, get a bunch of men together, somebody has to watch out for us. That's right. Because we just forget the common sense stuff. (laughs) We get so busy chasing fish. We forget that we, we, we get so excited to get back out there after it that that we forget to put sunscreen on or we forget to, to to grab the wide brim hat instead of just the baseball cap. That's right. That's right. But you know, while I did that for them, they um, shared with me their wealth of knowledge on fly fishing and travel. And um, so they all mentored me in becoming who I am today. Right, right. So I'm curious because when I looked up on the map, I said it's a thousand miles into the Indian Ocean across Africa. How far of a flight is that? That's got to be a long flight. It is a long flight. So how we used to do it, um, I'm taking a group of 11 anglers with me next January for another trip, and that will be my 12th trip um, since 2005. And um, we used to go from Houston to Paris, which is about 10 hours, and then Paris to Mahé, which is the main island um, of the Seychelles Islands. 
And that was another 10 hours. So it's, it's, it's a bear, but now, um, I fly Houston to Dubai, which is about 13 to 14 hours. And then Dubai down to Mahe, which is four and a half to five hours. So it makes it a little bit more doable. And I've got friends in Dubai who I fish with. And so I break it up a little bit, the travel. Okay. Yeah, so that way you can spend a day or so to recover from the 13-hour flight before you do the four-hour flight. Exactly, and kind of yeah. get on that time zone because Dubai and um, Seychelles are on the same time zone. So it kind of okay. gives you a day to get that up underneath you. Yeah. And that's really key to doing some of this fishing travel is not showing up um, for that trip to a totally different time zone and then going out for your fir- first full day the next day. You just you'll be exhausted and you don't get the full appreciation for what right. it really has to offer. Cause you're kind of in a weird zone twilight yeah. thing. Yeah. Yeah. I know I, I got a friend that hunts in South Africa every year and, uh, he's, he said that the, you know, he's done those 23 hour flights and said, you just can't do that anymore. So they started flying to Frankfurt, spend the night and then fly to South Africa. He said it's, it's 13 hours to Frankfurt and 10 hours to South Africa. And we so spend smart. the night, have a chance to rest, get on another day. He said it, it's, it's, it's completely different, changes the whole experience. So you don't spend three days getting over the 23-hour flight. I was like, that's, that's you know, I never would have thought to go to Germany to go to Africa. You yeah. know, it, it, but uh, uh, some sometimes by rethinking it a little bit, you can really change the whole experience. Oh, for sure. And you've yeah. got to give yourself time to adjust to those. Right. Time right. Zone, for sure. You do. You do. So it's pronounced Seychelles. Seychelles. That's correct. Okay. okay. Which island do you fish there? Because there's like a 15 of them or something like major <laughs> islands. Yeah. yeah. There are. I have fished um, five of them. Okay. Okay. And each one, because I've looked it up on Google Earth for you people who are looking for it, and, the, and each one has a little dirt airstrip on them because they're so small. So you go from just from island to island to island, I guess, huh? You do. So, well, and they don't all have dirt strips on them. And so on some of them, you'll fly into one island and then you'll have to make a crossing, an ocean crossing over to one that maybe is a little smaller. The ones that we're fishing um, with flies are mostly all atolls. And what a toll is, for those of you guys listening, um, is really almost, if you will, if you'll picture a volcano top that has then... Um, it's erupted and then has sunken into the ocean. So you just have a ring and um, that's above the ocean floor. And in that ring, um, you'll have, you know, part of it is ocean. I mean, it, part of it's island, part of it's maybe shallow flats, but you'll have channels within that ring um, that fill a lagoon. And the center, which was the center of the volcano, is now a deep lagoon where fish love to come and hunt and um, they come in and out with the tides. Oh, so that's, that's cool. What we're, yeah. Oh, it's just beautiful. Absolutely I bet beautiful. So. I bet so. So, and that's a good segue into, into, you know, your story with your dad taking you and you and him being fishing buddies and how you began chasing IGFA records. <laughs> that's right. That's right. So, you know, after that first trip in 2005, that group of men just really, they saw my passion for the sport. They knew I was working hard at the Mad Potter. I wasn't, you know, on the same financial playing field as they were. So, you know, they would find 
opportunities for me to maybe join them on trips that I otherwise maybe wouldn't be able to afford. Either they would find someone that had canceled last moment or they would find a good deal, a last minute spot. And because I worked for myself as an entrepreneur, that's one of the wonderful perks of doing that is that you can kind of pick up and leave. You don't have to ask your boss, Hey, can I take next week off? You, right, right. you know, if everything's in order with the business, you can go, you have no one to really answer to, but yourself and to your, your, your clients. So, um, I, I started traveling with them a good bit. Um, some of my dad's buddies and my dad's cause my dad's like, you know, I'm paying for this one trip, but it, that doesn't mean I'm paying for your fishing. So I started <laughs> to have to figure out ways to kind of underwrite my addiction. And, um, and one of those trips happened to be a trip to the Bahamas and it was with an owner of a, of a lodge there in an Island called Deepwater K. And he's a Houston fellow Houstonian. And he had invited two of these older men to join them. And they, he said, I've got room for two more people to come. So I invited a buddy and the, the owner of the Island was super, very, very kind and said, Hey, listen, I'll underwrite it all. All you have to do is pay for your guides, but getting there, um, we've got a plane so forth. And I just got very fortunate and I got invited in on that. And as we were landing, the owner of the island said, hey, I've got a surprise for you guys. Um, we are we are going to be the only people on the island as well as a film crew and an actor by the name of Liam Neeson. And, of course, I knew, I think most people know who he is. Um, he's been in Hollywood for quite a long time. Yes, ma'am. And while I haven't seen a lot of his movies, because um, I'm not a big action um, fan. I, I like more of my rom-coms and romantic comedies. Um, nothing wrong with that. I, that's right. That's right. But I knew who he was. And so, um, that was fun and I was excited. And as we landed, his plane was landing right in front of us with the film crew. Cause they were filming a TV show called Buccaneers and Bones. One that I hadn't heard of, um, but it is a fly fishing show on the outdoor channel. I don't personally watch a lot of TV. I just never have. We were brought up with no TV in our household. My dad just believed you don't watch it. You go out and live life and you play. You don't watch the sports on TV. You go play the sports outside. So um, I, di- I didn't wasn't aware of this show, but Liam and I hit it off as fast friends as he was not a very accomplished saltwater angler and he would not were friends actually just heard from him last week. He wouldn't mind me telling you that he is a trout man all day long. He likes fishing just a little four weight for trout. So he did not quite know what he was doing. And he was like, can you help me out? I can tell you. There's a big difference in throwing a four weight and throwing a nine weight. Oh, very big difference. Especially wind, you know, when you're and distance, whereas in trout fishing, he, he, you know, most of his fishing was done in a little streams up in upstate New York where he has a home. And this is like, you're trying to throw it as far as you can and, you know, with a heavy rod. So it was very different, but we became close friends. And every afternoon I would give him instructions and we would work on his double haul. And that's, uh, that's a technique used in fly fishing to build line speed so that you can fight the wind and send your line further, um, and faster, you know, in windy conditions. Right. Right. Um, and so while I would give him lessons, the, the film crew one day, probably on day two came up to me in there and said, who are you? I mean, you know what you're doing. 
And I said, well, I'm Meredith McCord. I'm from Houston, Texas, and I'm a pottery shop owner. And they're like, no, 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 who are you in the fishing world? You definitely, we can tell you, you're a fisherman. And I said, oh, no, no, you know, I just, no, I just love it. I'm very passionate about it. And they're like, have you ever thought about doing TV work? And I was like, well, does it, you know, I'm always looking for the angle for free fishing. So I said, does it mean free fishing? And they're like, well, yes, it would. And I said, and free travel too, you know? And they said, well, yes, that's kind of the idea is that you would, you know, we would take you somewhere remote and we'd fish and film. And I was like, oh my gosh, that sounds amazing. And they're like, well, <laughs> let us do a screen test. But we've got to tell you, you can't just be on TV. You you got to be somebody. You got to legitimize your name. And right now you're kind of a nobody. Yep. And I said, well... Thank you. My parents, <laughs> thank you very much. But my parents think I'm someone, and I know the Lord <laughs> above thinks I'm someone. But, uh, but you know, in in but the outdoor channel doesn't doesn't think the outdoor channels, right. yes, was not ready to have me have me yet because I had not created myself um, to be someone in the fishing industry. I understood. So yeah. that's where Pete, it all came about is sitting around the dinner table at Deepwater K with Liam, the film crew, Paul, who owned the lodge and my buddies and fishing buddies talking about how could I create a name for myself? And it was then that someone put on the table. Did you know that there are world record fish opportunities for women these days, they have just divided out the men from the women for world records. And, and that I, left a lot know, of vacant records, didn't it? A lot of vacant records. And it kind of made me laugh because I was like, what? There's, I mean, I know about the Guinness Book of World Records, but I had no idea there were fishing world records. Right. And then laughed even a little harder that they would separate those between male and female. It's, I mean, it's not like the fish knows the difference if a female <laughs> no. or male is pulling on them. So, I mean, I kind of thought it was a little goofy, but I, again, love a good challenge. I mean, firstborn, I think we, we always like, uh, we're a little competitive and I, th- that suited me just fine. I said, okay, tell me what I need to do. And we started looking at the record book even that week saying what records would I want to pursue? And one of my favorite fish to chase on fly is redfish. And I think oh, you guys I know love, a little I bit about that over redfish, there in yeah. South Carolina. Yeah. Yes, I love catching redfish. Love catching <laughs> redfish. Love, love, love. And so that's what happened. And it took me quite, quite some time from 2011 when I found out about chasing world records to the time that I caught my first world record, which was December 1st of 2012. I caught a 32 pound, uh, redfish on 16 class tippet. And that's the breaking strength of on your fly line. You guys, we call tippet, um, our line instead of calling it our, our test or our mono or whatever. We just refer to our line as tippet. Right. Which is the last so many feet of the monofilament that's not fly line. That's correct. Right. That's correct. Okay. It has to right. be more than 15 inches. You can have 12 inches of bite, which is kind of a shock tippet. If you're fishing for a toothy critter, you're allowed wire on there. Um, 
in right. this situation, I was fishing 16. And redfish, as you know, have that kind of that bumpy, they, they've they got do. a little bit of teeth to them. I wouldn't call them sharp teeth. I mean, it's not going to hurt you, but it's sandpapery enough to be abrasive to cut through um, 16. So I did use a piece of 30 pound on the end of that leader okay. uh, to protect my class tippet. And you are allowed up to 12 pounds. I mean, sorry, 12 inches of that. Right, right. And I do that when I'm in Canada fishing for pike. Yeah, do the exactly. same thing because they got big teeth and they'll they just do. destroy it. Yeah, <laughs> that's a little different. Yeah. yeah, that's a little different. Yeah, don't put your hand near the mouth of a pike. <laughs> no, no, don't lip pike. You do not lip pike. <laughs> not lip pike. That's right. That's right. That's right. So that's you know that's the story of. So where that I was your very first one then. That was my very first one, and um, two things happened out of that, Pete. First is, um, sure enough, I called the the producers of that show. Um, called Buccaneers and Bones at the Outdoor Channel. And I said, you guys won't believe it, but I've made myself someone. I am now a world record holder. And you know what? It was funny. That was all it took yeah. uh, to become someone in their in their eyes and in their mind. And so that following year, they invited me to be a part of the cast and crew of Buccaneers and Bones. And Liam was no longer on the show at that time, but I got the wonderful opportunity of working with Tom Brokaw, the news anchor, um, Huey Lewis, who just regaled me um, and kept me in stitches the entire time with his serenading and songs. Um, And then a very, very well-known fly fisherman, kind of we called him the grandfather of fly fishing for the U.S. is Lefty Cray, along with another cast of characters. But um, it was just a wonderful, wonderful thing and opportunity that I got to do and a great exposure to um, doing TV work and doing fishing shows. (laughs) Right, right. Well, once you had a, a IGFA world record that that made you marketable to the Outdoor Channel and to Buccaneer exactly. and Bones, and said, "Hey, we we have with us world record holder Meredith McCord." Um, and, but and you had Lefty Cray with you too. Oh my we gosh! Did. Yes, and so it was so much fun, and got a lot of life lessons from Lefty as well as just wonderful casting instruction too. So it it was just, you know, it was just what an opportunity. I'll never forget right, that. Right. And, um, How many seasons did you do that show? You know, it was just one season. They replaced me the following season with Jimmy Kimmel saying that um, I just wasn't funny enough and that they needed uh, someone funnier. So they got, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> they got Whether Jimmy or not Kimmel. you can catch fish is, is irrelevant. <laughs> That's right. So <laughs> I think I can outfish Jimmy. And Jimmy, if you're listening, yes, I, uh, I'll take it take that challenge to you. But, um, but I do think that he did bring, um, with him a lot better following than I I could bring to the show, but it was, it was a fun, it was a fun season and they did continually mix it up with who they had on the show. Um, so it, it was, it didn't hurt my feelings, but I was honored that they would even ask me for one season and that I would have that opportunity to meet such wonderful cast of characters. Well, and it opens up a lot of doors for you as well. I mean, Uh, I've got, Every opportunity can lead to another opportunity if we allow it. And it did. And believe me, it has and it continues to do so. So, so how did your dad react to your first world record? Well, that that's the other thing, Pete. That's that why I, let, that's why I boom fed it to you. <laughs> well, I appreciate that. But that's exactly <laughs> the second point. So the second point to catching that first world record was one that it, it did legitimize my name. It did get me a spot on that TV show that has then led to other opportunities. But 
the thing that really resonated the most with me was um, just watching my dad's pride. He just puffed up like a huge peacock after I caught that first world record. And I caught it, remember, December 1st. And that that Christmas season, as we went around to family events and had family dinners and holiday parties, dad, the first thing out of dad's mouth would be, did you know my daughter is a world record holder? <laughs> this is even before it had even been, you know, accepted and uh, approved. But he already knew that I, it, you know, in my eyes, right. I was a world record holder already. Right. And, um, you know, he was as an entrepreneur and as uh, just a wonderful counselor of people. He was always an encourager and cheerleader. But one of the things that he did when he would counsel my friends or any of us, his children, was he was all about setting goals and then working hard to obtaining those goals. And so to have seen me set before myself this this target of, I want a world record, and then going in and researching all that it takes to get a world record and then accomplishing it, you know, more than getting this 32-pound redfish, which, of course, excited him tremendously, but was the whole process that it took me down and all the hard work that he saw me put into it to get to it. Because it did. It took me 11 days and not straight days on the water and many hours of tying up leaders and losing fish, right, right, right. tying bad knots. There was a lot of education, both tough education on losing fish and some great education of finding mentors that could help me figure out how to tie better knots and build better leaders and, you know, how to fish. And also for- having a guide that that's willing to work with you to do that. I know because I love light line fishing. I'm not, I'm not nearly as good as a fly fisherman as I am as being as a spinning fisherman. I love the light lines, the two and four pound test. And a lot of guys like, you know, I'm not going to let you fight a fish on four pound test. It's just, I said, wait, you don't know. You don't understand. I can have him to the boat in four minutes. Probably. Exactly. Yeah. You're talking my language now. (laughs) I'm like, Come on, I'm not going to wear the fish out till he dies. If you just work with me, and and I, it's so me. hard yeah. to find a guy that'll work with you on that. That's right, and one that will believe in you, and then one also that just has the patience. And right, when you're right. sight fishing for a record such as this too, here's where the guide needs a lot of patience as well. Is we knew we needed some a fish over 28 pounds. So how many fish do you think we passed up? Right. Very good looking, healthy fish yep. before I would make a cast because you know what happens. If you cast at that 25 pound fish, guess who comes swimming by the moment that you're preoccupied fighting that 25 pound fish? The 35 pound fish. Oh, yeah. You're going to see the Absolutely. biggest fish you've ever seen. Absolutely. <laughs> so you've got to um, have the patience and the willpower to want to play the game. And with that, we'll have to draw this first episode with Meredith McCord to a close. Meredith, we we really appreciate you taking the time to interview with us. We have another part two of this interview that will be airing next week when we dive more into who she is as a person and who she is as a Christian. Thank you for tuning in to Christian Outdoors Podcast for this part one with our interview with Meredith McCord, world record holder of 190-plus IGFA world records and someone who loves Jesus Christ passionately. We're just so thankful for her taking the time to be with us on this podcast. So tune in next week when you'll get to hear part two with Miss Meredith McCord. 
Thank you for listening. God bless you. And remember, this is the podcast where we discuss all things outdoors and how we can enjoy God every day. This portion of the podcast is being brought to you by Cashaboe Outpost, your premier fly-in fishing outfitter in Canada. Cashaboe Outpost has 10 cabins on remote lakes in Ontario, Canada, and these cabins are what I call luxuriously rustic. Each cabin can only be reached by flying into the lake on one of their float planes. Once you land on the water, you are unloaded and your fishing adventure begins with world-class fishing for walleye, northern pike, smallmouth bass, and lake trout. To book your next fishing adventure, contact Cashaboe Outpost at cashaboeoutpost.com.